I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I don't even know where we're going to go with this. Um, I don't even, I don't know what we're talking about. So. Like if someone's talking, I don't want to interrupt you. Because mm. in yeah. my culture, interrupting is a sign of like enthusiasm, but in North American culture, it's very rude. Oh, that's really funny because we just interrupt each other and our guests all the fucking time. Yeah. And, and, good, so and you don't it, catch feelings. So it's, it's, no, okay. no. It's a, it's a sign of enthusiasm <laughs> for us, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sometimes our, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes yeah, our fans right. are like, you like interrupted your guests quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Got it, just like yeah that. We, we oftentimes get a lot of feedback about <laughs> oh, that's our biggest. Uh, our biggest piece of flack. interrupt our guests yeah. and each other. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, although, I, let me just say this. Because we don't have headphones, I've, I left the splitter. Just be mindful of speaking over each other. <laughs> no. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> Duly well, v, noted. This is, I'm really excited about this because um, uh, this is, I feel like this has been like a really long time coming. I remember, uh, and I have, a, I have a shit memory. So, so I vaguely remember us at Good Robot. Yeah. For some sort of event, maybe it was like the Hellfire Social, Social Network. Yeah, right. And and you had, I think you got up and spoke, or yeah. or maybe you asked a question, or you, you said something. And then I was like, "Oh, who the fuck was that? That was a that was like that that question's right up my alley." And then someone had said, "Oh, V's a V's a nurse practitioner." Yeah. And I was like, "Oh, okay, yeah. sweet. We should we should link up." And I remember that night I asked you, I was like, would you ever have, uh, you know, interest in coming on the show? And you, you were very interested. And then fast forward, fucking, what is that? Like two years ago or like a year, a a year year, ago? It was was a little under a year ago. I don't know if you remember the question you asked me. I don't. I don't. Do you? Yeah. Oh, fuck yeah. Go (laughs) for it. So I was giving a talk about me and who I am and what I do. And that particular night I was speaking for the most part, around my work as a clinician, um, about some of the work that I do with emotional intelligence, with um, particularly at the time it was male inmates at a maximum male security prison. Um, but that's work I try and do with all of my patients, whether I'm, treat- whether I'm treating you medically um, or for you know something psychiatric in nature. But my talk, I started to speak about wounded healers and about mm. how caregivers need support and Mm -hmm. about how a lot of us carry our own trauma that we don't speak of and can be triggering sometimes Mm -hmm. um, dealing with other people and whether it's personal trauma, vicarious trauma, caregivers need support themselves. And you asked me a question and I think it was, do you have a sister? I do. Yeah. 
I think it was about your sister and some of the things that she sees and you were asking how to be there for her. Yeah, yeah, because she's a correctional officer. Or, or mm-hmm. she, uh, yeah, she still is. She, she just mm-hmm. went back. She was on mat leave. Wait, no, she's still on mat leave. She's just been pumping out babies like, <laughs> fucking, like some Irish woman she from the 1500s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but she, or she, the 1800s, worked, yeah, or whatever, you know, any, much, more, much more recently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, she's been, she's worked in the prison system, and you know, and it's like it, it, uh, I've always, I've always really looked up to her for what she does because she also, she's, she's a, she's like a young, very beautiful woman. And I remember when she was like, oh, I'm going to go work in the prison. I was like, oh my God. Like I, I got, I felt so nervous for her, but she's such a strong, badass bitch that I was like, yeah. oh wait, no, you're, you're way more mm. stronger than I ever could have imagined. But that's like a, that's a theme that's like come up in pop culture people who are in, you know, especially like uh, first responder, like lines of work, mm-hmm. that that is a, a theme in pop culture and television and film in, since probably like, you know, mid 2000s that the the psychological effects of people's work mm-hmm. is and, and giving or taking care of whether it's people in the army or whether it's uh, the, 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 the inmates or an ambulance uh, or uh, a medic or a, a police officer or a firefighter or whatever, mm-hmm. those, are, those are typically the, the roles that we see, I think, portrayed a lot. That, that, is a, that their, their psychological, the, the psychological effect of their work mm-hmm. is, is, has a huge impact. Yeah. And that then... <clears throat> Obviously, that's I think that's used because there's a there's like an entertainment or a maybe a thriller. It's sensationalized. T- it's sensationalized, but then everybody's giving in a in some capacity. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And when you said when you said caregivers need help too, or need um, uh, need care care is that I was just running a yoga teacher training in Indonesia for the last month, and I just got home, and that was a big part of what we were saying is that. If you're going to give, which we're trying to, we're trying to give people the skills to give what they love in yoga to other people, but giving that away comes at a, at a cost. And if you're going to give, you need to be able to take time to receive and you need to take care of that first or else your giving is not going to be that effective. Mm-hmm. So, and I think I mentioned the same night that I gave the talk, one at a very early age, I had watched more people die than I could count. So why say that media, <clears throat> TV, movies sensationalize trauma in a way is because trauma doesn't look the same in real life. It doesn't present the same in real life as we typically classically see on TV mm-hmm. and so it's how do you how do you recognize the people around you who need extra care? Well, what like what are some of the ways that it does present then in real life? So trauma can be masked with you know signs of hypervigilance or fear or aggression or depression. But the layman Walking down the street, you may see someone, you know, aggressive walking down the street, beating someone up. And that that goes back to what we were just talking about before Mm -hmm. we started recording um, around masculinity and how 
mm. anger and aggression are often perceived as you being a dick, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word. When there's more, there's a lot more brokenness there than we're acknowledging. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. They, they, oftentimes, it's actually a symptom of something greater than yeah. than someone just being an asshole. Yeah, and yeah. a lot of times we're operating from a place of of fear. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that same night that I met you, when I was talking about having witnessed more people die than I could count, at when I worked in acute care medicine, I'd often stay after my shifts to stay with patients who were dying. And who didn't have family. Some people did, which was amazing. And sometimes I would stay after my shift to support the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some people didn't. And, <coughs> and I, I, have a, I have a belief in my core that no one should die alone. If they don't want to die alone, no one should die alone. And oftentimes people are longing for company. But the, the important thing of those conversations that I'd have with patients before they were they were dead while they were dying was giving them a space to speak of that fear Mm. and even bridging the gap between family members and the patients what is unspoken Mm -hmm. what are the fears here and you oftentimes see people who have been estranged for decades right and perhaps a family member who is considered to be a bit of a jerk Mm -hmm. what is what healing yeah. is needed here and what conversations are needed to happen for that healing mm, right and how do we make space for those conversations and i was an rn at the time like this was way well beyond my my your, your pay, pay grade, grade. Yeah, right. <laughs> but these uncomfortable conversations mm-hmm. are of the most importance but they're what we neglect the most you yeah. know it's it's really interesting that you say that because i think one of the most valuable things that i've learned from um my mom in life is that uh she lost her her mother to mm-hmm. to cancer when um her mom was quite young and uh there was a lot of things in that relationship that went unsaid mm-hmm. and those things like really um, affected my mom and the way that she looked at uh, dying, the way that she mm-hmm. viewed her relationship with her mom, the way that she felt um, um, burdened by the things that went unsaid. Mm-hmm. And when my grandfather passed away, my mom spent like every day she would go to the hospital to visit him for um, hours at a time. And and in those um, last few weeks, I remember she would come home and she would talk to me and she was like, I, I told him like all of these things mm-hmm. and I said all these things. And, and when he passed, she felt like so much better. It, it was so much easier for her to grieve the process because she said the things that she had to. And now I feel like in, in my life, I don't want to, I don't want to leave Any anything left unsaid, you know? <laughs> yeah. Listen, <laughs> How do I say this? Death doesn't have to be this ugly monster. And when we approach it like that, when we face it head on, like Brene Brown talks about shame and guilt and all these things often. And the things that we are most afraid of are the things that we need to face the most. Mm -hmm. But we don't even say that people are dead. We say they passed. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The fear of the word die. It is to not say that someone such died? an ugly thing. I know, yeah. It is a natural part of life. And if we could allow ourselves to have those difficult mm-hmm. conversations, 
um, something in my personal life. So I, someone who's very dear to me died in my arms. I was 17. I, I just turned 17 and she died on Thanksgiving. And we come from a culture that's very devout in faith. And I'm, I very much ascribe to my faith. Mm-hmm. But there was, there's, there's culture and then there's faith. And then there's an inability to separate the two, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this culture of, oh, no, no, don't cry. No, 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 just, just pray. Oh, she's with God. I don't care where she, I mean, I, like, yeah. <laughs> it, that doesn't make me feel better. Yeah. I'm not worried about where she is right now. Mm-hmm. I needed to be given the permission to grieve. What is, what is your culture? <clears throat> My family is from Sudan and Egypt, and I'm Coptic Christian. So the Coptic people are the- Coptic? Coptic. C-O-P-T-I-C? Correct. Okay. And the Coptic, hence the tattoo. Um, the Coptic people are the indigenous people of Egypt, the Coptic Christians, but we're now less than 20% of the country. Mm-hmm. So the Coptic people are still persecuted and killed till this well, there's day. Been, yeah, there's some pretty crazy bombings. attacks recently. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. And the, I was in Egypt for one of the last attacks- um, it's so faith isn't just a matter of like, you know, Sunday, it's not a, a, a self-righteous holier than thou. It is, this is, this is what I believe. And, and it's part of your you, DNA. Yeah. And yeah. You, li- you live with love as mm-hmm. you're called to. Um, so it's not, sometimes it bothers me we keep, when we can't separate church, um, or whatever your faith may be from culture. Mm-hmm. Right. And in this instance, I mean, whether you're Christian or not, the the existence of Jesus is historical. And when you look at the way Jesus treated people as a human being, he was empathetic. Mm -hmm. He took in people who society would throw out. So for me, there are a lot of things that we practice in culture that really aren't right by faith, Mm -hmm. right? And sometimes that's not a popular subject. (coughs) But in this instance, sorry, I go on tangents. I needed to be given the permission to grieve. And I was raised in a house, in a home, where our father wouldn't let anyone go to sleep if, if anyone at home was fighting. Because he would say, and my dad lives, you know, his faith to a T, he would say, the, the gospel says, don't let the sun set on your anger. And so I have a very low tolerance for unresolved conflict in my life. Mm-hmm. But also because of having, you know, experienced death and dying and going through that earlier on in life because this this person who was very close to me she was like family she was she was 12 years old and i watched all the adults in her life push her away as she was dying i watched the fear of the adults while she was dying because they were afraid of their own pain like pushing the pain, themselves away from the emotion that might come the pain of come. losing a yeah. child <clears throat> yeah. was so great Mm-hmm. And it was that moment in my life when I learned what my heart was made for, what my purpose here is for, because I drew closer. Mm. Yeah, you pulled and yourself she got, in. And I, I didn't understand. I was still, a, you know, a young woman myself. I was still a child, mm-hmm. um, relatively speaking. But I knew that it wasn't good. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to be there with her. Yeah, and that, I didn't it, understand fully that she was dying. Is that what pushed you to become a nurse? Totally. Okay. So, oh man, this is this this is like, I love when we come into these conversations and have no idea where we're going to go with them because this mm-hmm. is so, 
this is just not I had no idea this is where we were going. This is like I I love that we're just dropping some fucking hard Sorry. knowledge right now. This no, it's amazing. It's, it's so great. No. It's no, it's it's this is what we strive for. This is mm. this is like this is this stuff is such it's such vital storytelling. It's such vital information for people to take and digest because people do find it hard. People mm-hmm. still find it hard, even here, even in my culture, in our culture. Mm-hmm. And you know, like the Western world is so death phobic. And so this is like, this is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know about your your journey into to where you are today um, uh, as a as a nurse practitioner. But before we get to that, mm-hmm. what the fuck is a nurse practitioner? Because <laughs> okay, I know I know what an LPN is. My mom's an LPN. Yes, which I think. My dad always said stood for lower paid nurse, but I don't think that that's, that's what it is. License there we go. Sweet. So there's there's LPN, uh, there's RN, which my dad said was rich nurse, nurse, but that's a registered nurse. Okay. Registered. And then okay, so what what is a uh, good old cob? So <laughs> yeah. ha, ha, what is a nurse practitioner? Yeah, like ha, what sets one? an LPN, an RN, and a nurse practitioner apart? Because so, I actually don't know. I actually have no yeah, idea what you do. A, that's that's a great question. <clears throat> um, so the main differences are scope of practice. So LPNs provide nursing care. Their scope of practice reaches a certain threshold. Now, in certain parts of the world, like out west in Alberta, LPNs are able to do more. Like they're able to do like IV medications. Um, They're able to start IVs. In Nova Scotia, we're very slow catching up with that. A registered nurse has a high, like not higher, like a different scope of practice. Mm -hmm. And so they're able to... um, Take care of IV medications. Take care of more acutely ill patients. Flush out a port, or like, yeah, or yeah. those kinds of things. Sure. Yeah, and um, and LPNs, I think here can do. They that can as do that well. too. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I've been out of hospital practice for some time, um, but in all my years of acute care medicine, so I worked on the medical teaching unit, and I actually think you're my patient at one point. No so shit, really. Yeah, and I, <laughs> yeah. Before we knew each other, and I remember one of my coworkers saying, "That's my yoga instructor." Oh, then that probably was me. <laughs> Yeah, that's really funny. And I Not the girl the who room. stuck uh, I remember her the finger room. in your ass. No, no. Well, there was no, a lot no, no, of nurses that stuck their finger in my ass. And it could have been her, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I listened to your, the talk that you posted just the other day. Oh, yeah. Remarkable. Anyways, I remember the exact room <clears throat> we were in at the time. But um, on that unit, we would, we'd have an RN and an LPN uh, team together with a set of patients. The LPN would take the more stable patients and the RN would oversee the more acutely ill patients. Got it. As a nurse practitioner, I so I went back to school. I did my master's in nursing, and I did the nurse practitioner program. So I have an even different scope of practice now. So I can diagnose, I can treat, I can manage illnesses, um, I can refer to specialists, I can do minor surgical procedures. And essentially, I love nursing, I really, I, I genuinely love nursing. And it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine when I get asked why I didn't do medicine. And that's not to knock medicine, but medicine's my calling. My calling is nursing. I love the bedside. And even though I'm not at the bedside anymore, I still have that approach mm. with patients. There seems to be a much more, um, there seems to be in my, uh, my limited experience with like being cared for in a hospital and also... Yeah, rub being, it in, Taylor. Fucking <laughs> rub it in. Okay, yeah, we get it. You're a specimen. I, I just rarely get ill. I mean, I'm not saying it's not coming. Have you ever uh, been in the hospital, though? Yeah, actually. Um, when was the last time you were ever in the hospital? 
Um, I passed. I don't think I remember school. I've I've never known you. I haven't been in the hospital since we've been friends. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) Anyway, so what you're about to say is really, yeah, yeah, really, it's based on nothing. It's really, I'm really just making a guess. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, this is basically Grey's Anatomy. It seems like it seems like nurses has uh, nurses have. Uh, there's a much more personal angle to nursing than there is with with medicine with doctors. Like doctors, seems it seems like there's a very it's very like not that there's not doctors who have you know good bedside manner and and that have a personal angle that they bring to their patients. But it seems that if you're gonna you know paint with a broad broad brush, then that there is much more personal care empathy involved with nursing than there is with doctors and their patients. I would hope that across the board that would exist. Mm-hmm. And I hope that across the board that exists in all nurses. Humans are humans are humans. <clears throat> and like I said, I hope that across the board that exists in all clinicians, there is a difference in being taught and raised throughout your schooling with a medical model and being raised and, and kind of brought up in it with a nursing model. And, and that essentially is, is why I love nursing. Mm-hmm. Um, and why I, I chose to stay with the profession. But I wanted more. I wanted to be able to do more for people. Not to say that I wasn't doing for as, as an RN. But with my life as an artist, as a singer, a poet, a spoken word poet, who's involved with social justice issues. And, and I... I wanted to be able to do more with a bit more autonomy mm-hmm. for my patients, I guess, for the sake of helping as many people as I feel I could help. And there are a lot of days when I miss the bedside, but there, you know, every day at my job, I, I love what I do. Like, I, I can't complain about my work. Because mm-hmm. I really love it. What are you doing now? What, what's your like? Because I, I know that you've had a, a quite a varied yeah. number of of jobs with within this like nurse practitioner yeah. realm. Um, can you list off like all the different things sure. that you have done, or or you know a, a chunk sure. of the things that you've done? Sure. Um, yeah. So as a nurse practitioner, I actually stayed in Nova Scotia for a year and a half without being able to find employment. Um, more on that later. As Classic a, clini- as a clinician. Well, I, th- I think it was quite different as a clinician of color. Um, I, that's something else I want to get into yeah, later. Yeah, because, yeah. and again, I talked about that that same night we met. We did. We did talk about that a little bit, yeah. Um, I just don't think it helps your resume. And it got to the point where... Does it help anyone's resume right now? You know, like, oh, have, I think, I feel Having like, a foreign name, Yeah, yeah. I think there's an added dimension. And I, I'll say that because I insisted that... No, there just aren't jobs. There just aren't jobs. Mm. I worked for NSHA for, what, six years? Which is the Nova Scotia Health Health Authority. Authority. So which was CDHA. Um, I worked there on the medical teaching unit before my schooling. During my schooling, I would work from 7 p.m. till 7 a.m. in acute care, and then I'd go to class all day. Wow. Worked worked my butt off, (laughs) and I didn't have anyone paying my way through life or school. And I, so I had no choice. But I, all this to say, I worked for the Nova Scotia Health Authority all that time. And uh, when I finished, there were internal jobs, and I had internal seniority because, like, I've worked there. For, You've been there for that yeah. long. Um, and I, I wasn't even getting a call back, 
which is baffling to me because every job I've ever had was because someone met me and said, you, like, I want you to work for me. And like, cool, you don't have to like hire me without interviewing me, but at least give me a fair shot. And I was supposed to at least be given a call back or an interview where I, I was internal. So that went on for months and months. And you think this was because of your name? Or potentially, I, I, potentially I think, the name. I don't think I can attribute it to one thing. I think there are multiple different factors. Sure. Like, because yeah. Nova Scotia is also who knows who knows who, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, so that, I, I don't think it's just that. I don't think it helped, but I don't think it's just that. Yeah. I think I'd be naive um, mm-hmm. or, or, or polarized to say it was just that, but I don't think it helped. And I think I realized that dimension when someone who's Caucasian, who is in a position of authority within the hospital, knew about this and was like, "This is." fishy at this point because it had been so long and there were so many job openings and they said you need to go to the union and that wasn't like i didn't want to do that (laughs) right yeah yeah, right raw 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 yeah no just you know i'm i'm not trying to beg anyone to hire me like i Mm. know what i bring to the table and i've worked really hard to get there and so i went to ontario (laughs) and i worked at a primary care um mainly nurse practitioner-led clinics. We had a physician who would come in once a week, um, but that only lasted for a few months. We were without a physician for a while. Um, But it was awesome because nurse practitioners in Ontario have a much broader scope of practice and they're much more recognized than they are in Nova Scotia. So it's really nice to start my nurse practitioner career there. So I can't even complain about everything that happened before because I feel like I became... Who you are. Yeah, yeah, that was a really important part of my story. So Mm -hmm. I'm thankful for that, right? Uh, And I honor that. So I was in Ontario for some time there, and I was working predominantly with very marginalized communities. So I had no idea that um, migrant workers were a thing in Canada. I had no idea. And I had no idea of the complexities of challenges and difficulties that come with migrant workers and, like, injustices in that regard. Migrant workers working in, like, what capacity? Farms. Because that's, you know... I was mentioning before we started recording that I lived in Dubai for a number yeah. of years, and that's what I was imagining when, like, I was I was um, shocked with the it's big issue, like there. the fact mm-hmm. that there's essentially <laughs> slave labor and still exists, and yeah. and to to hear you say that about Canada, I'm like, wh- like what? Really? My heart would break. Mm-hmm. My heart would break because some of these workers, they have to go through like fitness tests and whatnot before they come. And Well, all of them have to <clears throat> from, in, from their own countries. But what would happen is people would come and they'd be, they'd have serious medical issues and their workers or their employers wouldn't give them like the time off. Like they would have to take time unpaid, for example, um, to come to clinic appointments. So you'd have people who really need to be seen, but who couldn't be seen. So you'd have to stay at, you know, after hours until like 8 p.m. until they were off their shift so they could come see you. Mm. Um, and, and this was what you and were some doing. Of the, yeah, and some of the living quarters were unbearable and some of like the, the sexual assault uh, or rapes that would happen, like women getting impregnated on these, in their living quarters. Holy fuck. Um, from different countries and they'd have to go back to their husbands after the the... The season was yeah, over. Yeah, right. so are these like so companies that are hiring like mass numbers of people from from other countries? Like I'm I'm so imagining this as like a I'm I'm because my only experience is what I know about Dubai, and I'm thinking of like companies hiring. So it's they have coverage by like OHIP, <clears throat> um, the Ontario Health Coverage, and it's it's not illegal. Like this is 
funded by, yeah. um, I don't think it's the federal government. I think it's provincial. Um, so there's a lot of regulations around that. Are these government so jobs for, though, and, or private and, jobs? Like, no, they're, they're not government jobs. Okay. They're not government jobs. They're um, for the companies that would hire them. This is, and there was a large Mennonite community, um, and on I had one patient who was very very, and so with the Mennonite community, there's a whole other, um, whole other set of needs. And very, very unique needs. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of them would, you know, go to Bolivia at very young ages. I had one, you know, patient who she was married at 14 to a, a much older man, went to Bolivia. And when she first presented to clinic for prenatal care, she was 19, just coming back to the country for a visit, but was five months pregnant during her first prenatal appointment. But because they had, they would have no coverage if you're out of the country. Um, so then, how do you manage that care? So a lot of complexities like right. that. And then we had, um, you know, some patients who were Syrian refugees. It, like, so my heart was really like, I loved that job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I loved that job. I loved that workplace. I loved my my coworkers. My our team was amazing. Shout out to the Windsor Community Health Center. They're wonderful people. Deliver wonderful care um, to, is, is to people there, who really need it. Is there um, many like ethical decisions as a caregiver where you're like restricted in in what you're actually able to do (laughs) but like the care that you feel that you need to provide like is yeah and how do you how do you walk that line yeah um that's it's very difficult and i face that again in the prison as well Mm -hmm. um so and the the prison was the job after this job so the prison was the reason i came back to nova scotia so that's that's a thing often in healthcare. Um, so you can't breach boundaries, obviously. Um, and if someone, for example, doesn't have certain coverage, so people who may not be Canadian citizens or may not be, like people who come as refugees have, have coverage. But for example, that patient who was overseas all these years and then came back, well, you don't have coverage, so I couldn't refer to a specialist, so I would take on her care. Right. It's uh, you know I was uh, <laughs> there. There was uh, a couple of people who reached out to me personally in this past week after um, there was this episode of The Resident that that came out on TV. And um, oh, is that a TV show? It's a TV <laughs> show. And Brian just told me about this uh, show. I've never heard of it. I'm so the, sheltered when it comes to Although what you were about, about to say. kind of like an action uh, like hospital show. <laughs> yeah, lots of explosions. Wait, Taylor, did I tell you about this? this no. Is, this is I've seen fun. a commercial for it. Oh, my God. The episode from Monday. Ladies and gentlemen, strap yourselves in. This is actually, this is pretty wild. Sick boy exclusive. Sick boy exclusive. Okay, okay. Thanks for saying it, Brian. I just told Donovan to no, no, he do just, it. He just edited my voice to make that sound cool. So... Um, so the episode this week on the resident, um, I, I watched it last night because so many people had reached out and said like, you gotta, you need to know, Sick you need, boy to, know needs to know about the show. So well, Taylor, you're going to be blown away. <laughs> so the, the main plot line was not, was not really related to this part, but there's this like breakaway subplot that's going on. And, uh, this guy comes into the hospital and he's like grabbing his side and he's like, Oh man, I've got the worst pain. And the doctor's like. The doctor is like appendicitis and the yes. other doctor's there and he's like, I you bet, are. he's like, I bet you $5 it's an appendicitis. And he looks at his chart and he goes, can't be, a, he had his appendix removed. 
Well, the plot and, thickens. Uh, and so anyway, no. Cuts away. Yeah. No. Cuts, yeah. cuts back. Cuts back. He goes, oh, man. They're looking at the chart. They're looking at the, the, uh, X-ray or the ultrasound. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're like, he's got an appendix. I was going to say, did he have two? Or did he have the wrong organ removed? He had, well, wait till you hear this, V. Yeah, he, he's, so, like, he's like, call his emergency contact. They go. They call the emergency contact. And uh, it's his brother. And his phone rings at the bedside table. <gasps> He's an identical twin, and it's in the States, so he used his insurance card, his brother's insurance card, no. and pretended to be him. And and anyway, so... Brian did this. <laughs> no. Brian has a twin brother who no. currently lives in Vancouver, <laughs> no. and Brian... Well, you go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it's, so, long story short, because I'm sure the fucking listeners are like, yeah. Jesus, listeners we, skip we've ahead heard about, this so yeah, many 45 seconds so, to a minute and a half... So anyway, the 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 point is is they they end up like figuring it out. And uh, I told Jerry last night when I talked to him on the phone that the brother died in the hospital, but um, because of complications, it didn't happen. In that episode. didn't happen in the show. I, wa- I watched it; it didn't happen. Oh, so. you fucker! Because so, I was like, I was going. That's a crazy so, ending. Um, also, it turns out that you got to fix this because your brother might die. Right? He <laughs> had like rheumatoid arthritis, and there was complications with the medication they were giving him and stuff too. That, uh, but anyway, the whole the po- whole point is is that. The twin brother came into the hospital and um, and they're like, why did you do this? Like, this is so dangerous. You could have died. And the guy's like, I'm so saddled with debt. Like, like I, I just had to use my brother's insurance card. I don't have any insurance. And the doctor's sitting there and he's like, he's like, man, um, accounts, accounts payable or the accounting clerk is coming up right now to like figure out the paperwork. And he's like, please, can you help me? Like, please don't, don't tell them it's me. So the doctor's like sitting there and he's like, Man, like this was like such a small treatment. It's going to cost so much money. Like as a doctor, I know that this happened, but do I disclose this to the accounts clerk? Like, do we, do we make this guy have to pay another fuckload of money and like possibly face fr- fraud charges? Oh, and they just the the accounting clerk shows up and they're like, yeah, never mind. Everything's taken care of, and they just send them away. So like the doctor there makes a decision that's like, I'm so thankful we don't mm. have to do that. Can't you know, like, <laughs> like, and that's why, and that's why, kind of like what inspired me to like bring up the the ethics Ethical. part of the conversation mm. because it's like, you know, did I know that that's a a, a fictional example, but and, like and I should say that Scrubs does a much more jovial sort of episode on the exact same thing. Yeah. No, they don't. Do they? Yeah, they do. Yeah, well, they uh, they <laughs> they definitely uh, yeah, much more it's much more fun. If the guys from the resident, the writers from the resident are are listening, um, we'll give you that one. But uh, let oh, us know yeah. next time you're going to do something like that. Yeah, okay. Um, I, I think it's huh, I can make a killing if I worked in the states, um, and no disrespect. And I mean, my sister, my brother-in-law, and my nieces and nephew are in the states, but I right. couldn't do it. I it's pretty wild, it. like the I whole could, state I of everything. I could make a killing. I could be rid of yeah. my student debt, like overnight. Yeah, yeah, it's a wildly but different system. Hugely, but um, <clears throat> I don't see healthcare as a business. Mm. And and again, that's why I love what I do so much, right? Um, and whether whether you're an LPN or you're a nurse practitioner or you're a doctor or you're an, whatever the case may be, however you provide care. I'm all for the empathetic approach. If we have the ability to save somebody's life, why should it matter how much money is in your bank account? And how do you put a dollar sign on that? Mm-hmm. How do you put a dollar sign on whose life is more valuable? Mm-hmm. It just, I, I can't. Yeah, um, well, I, I mean, they don't, 
I shouldn't say that they don't because I, I really don't know. Do they not give care when they don't they ha- don't isn't it a requirement to give the care that's people required to keep people up. alive? But but they they do end up with debt, right? Oh, they don't let people die. Oh, it's just like the prison system. Sick Boy Podcast. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. So what's a, what's a prison like? So after the job in Ontario, I moved back to Nova Scotia to pioneer and create the role at Spring Hill uh, Maximum Male Security Prison. So I <laughs> Spring Hill is a prison here in Nova Scotia, just outside Halifax, right? Mm. It's in it's Burnside. Two hours? No. Oh no, it's no, a federal that, prison. Sorry, Burnside's the, yeah, the jail, like the the jail jail. Yeah. And then Spring Hill's the the prison prison. Yeah. So it's yeah, a right. medium to maximum. Yeah. When you say it twice. It, and (laughs) (laughs) one's the jail jail and one's the prison you know although i've heard like i mean this is also a little like sort of uh side tangent but i've heard i've heard uh you you i've heard of people who who are like fuck putting me in burnside jail send me to spring hill because burnside is such a like i think they both have their i think they both have their can of worms yeah right gosh to say the least that's me really sugarcoating yeah of course of course and I mean, the whole correctional system, the whole judicial, like there's, it depends on who you are, if I'm being honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I ran the medical, I ran a medical and psychiatric clinic there at Spring Hill and I created the nurse practitioner role there. And I will say, because this came to mind when you were talking about your sister, <clears throat> the inmates were protecting me from the staff. Mm. And I had a lot more. I didn't have issues with the inmates. I treated them with dignity, with humanity, and was targeted as a result. Because shortly after I started working there, I realized, and you have to keep in mind, so I'm a young, for those who can't see me, I'm a woman of color, I'm relatively young, I'm not horrendous on the eyes. You have to take all that into account when you're thinking about a clinician walking in to... A prison of such mm-hmm. as a as a woman of color, as a woman who's educated and, and a lot more educated than some so who I was working with, that doesn't rub people the wrong the right way mm-hmm. and not to say everyone because that's not the case that's not how humans work, and I believe that we're all inherently good, and that just might be me with my naive mind and heart, but i I believe that, and that is my approach to the world. But I believe that as we grow, we all have stories. And, you know, from from early on in our story, we could pick up some pretty problematic views and tendencies and behaviors and attitudes. And we either approach them and are made aware of them and approach them or we don't. And when we don't is when that becomes problematic. And so me being compassionate to the inmates was an issue to a lot of the staff and, and not all the staff. I'll keep saying that because not everyone um, was mean. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> I quickly noticed that the inmates of color 
were being denied health care. And not even subpar health care. So I did something about it. And I would... (laughs) And then I had to not... So, for example, if I was booking my clinic, I had to make sure for the sake of the fear of the staff and not just the correctional staff that I, you know, didn't book two inmates, like two black inmates back to back. I booked them apart in my patient load for the day. So as not to make anyone comfortable. Mm. I had to be very mindful of how I walked because I was a target and the inmates knew it. And the inmates were coming to me at one point saying, V, like we appreciate everything you're doing for us, but you need to stop because they're coming for you. And how did they know that? Like, how, how were they, like, oh, the, are, are they just picking up on that? When you have of, nothing to do <clears throat> they're hearing all day, and, every day, and you are locked up like an animal. Yeah. And that's not to say people don't, you know, you, you do the crime, you pay the time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, we are accountable for our actions. Totally. But correction should be to work towards healing. Well, there's no, it's, not a, it's not a rehabilitation center. No, and a lot of stretch. people, when you look at socioeconomic status, when you look at um, racial disparities, when you look at Im- impoverished communities, when you look at mental health, when you look at broken families, when you, wh- so many aspects influence choices people make. But guess what? And the, I'm on a tip lately because my, my view of the world is, is ever-changing. And more and more and more I'm realizing how good people are capable of making really bad choices. Mm-hmm. And just because you do a bad thing, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. Again, I, go, I, I will forever mm-hmm. reference Brene Brown. Guilt <clears throat> versus shame. Mm-hmm. Guilt is I did bad. Shame is I am bad. Mm-hmm. And and the and we live in a society that's obsessed with shaming people, and so it's very easy to put people in under the label of like criminals. And I, I do that with air mm-hmm. quotes because I don't believe that I don't believe in calling people by a label, right? Joe Rogan was talking the other day about the um, what is the path to redemption? Yeah. Like we we persecute and individuals, and like, yeah. but then we don't give them an opportunity to ever lean into that, to ever yeah. come back. Yeah, and, that, and like, that's something so, that's that's like, something that's just be- becoming more and more apparent in the last like few years. It's be it's becoming more um, more of like a hot topic, and especially mm. in the last like you know. Four, five, six years, where it's you know some someone fucks up, someone makes a mistake, and hey, look, they fucked up, but also, you know, the world at large does not give them the opportunity to to have that for that, redemption, that, that yeah. time for redemption, yeah. and it's and it's it's so problematic. It's it's it blows my mind that like you look at um, I, I really like that that documentary where to invade next. Because they go around the world and they look at all these different facets of. Was that the Michael of, Moore one? I think it was. Yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, and I they look at that. all these these, these different um, areas that certain um, countries and cultures excel in. And um, when I think of the prison system, I think of mm. the. I think it was the Norwegian prison system. Yeah. Mm. And the way that they treat, quote unquote, inmates there is 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 with this compassion and with this belief that they will be able to be re- rehabilitated. Mm-hmm. And like you look at models like that that exist in Stella. other parts of the world and you think... With success. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. you think, why not here? Yeah. So a few things. And sorry, my, my mind is kind of... I want to sure, go back yeah. to answering your question. Mm-hmm. 
I want to bring it full circle first and answer your question. Yeah. I want to speak to that. Remind me of that in yeah. a second, okay? When you are, because you asked, how do the inmates know? Yeah, yeah, right. When you are locked up in a cage, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. or a better way of saying it, and you have nothing to do all day, every day, you're not stimulating your mind, you're not learning emotional literacy, you're not able to properly and adequately, adequately socialize, you are socially isolated from your family and support system, and for the most part, you are dead to the world outside of the prison. Mm. You pay attention to everything. Yeah. You pick up on everything. And one inmate said to a guard, why are you guys so hard on her? About me. And the response was, and I quote this, and, and part of my language, I would, I, I would typically not speak this, because um, I don't like this word. But the guard said, what does she expect coming in here like a revolutionary without giving any pussy out? Well, that's a hardcore thing to say. Whoa. Holy shit. So the inmates didn't just pick up on vibes. They were were actively hearing people. They're being told. Yeah, yeah. and so I would volunteer after the clinic some days to do writing workshops with the black inmates um, to help them work through some of their... um, some of their own trauma. And that was not very popular. Mm. But it was how does that how does that manifest as being not popular? I'm just I'm I just curious. Scared. Straight up, straight up. I was this, terrified. <clears throat> this sounds like an episode of fucking Oz. Like I don't know if anybody's um, watched no, Oz, but it is. I will say prison Oz. shows are like Disneyland. Oz is not. Oz is one of those shows Oz that like Oz was like dark as as I was looking fuck. over my shoulder when I would walk. <clears throat> so Spring Hill's like an out. Like there are. The buildings are separate mm. and you have to walk through like outdoor tunnels. Mm. I was looking over my shoulder when I would walk anywhere and it wasn't because of inmates. I was never once yeah. scared. I can't. There was one time where I was a little frightened, um, but that wasn't a normal situation. Yeah. And that was, yeah, different situation in the prison. But I wasn't scared of inmates. Yeah. And, and I'll never forget, there was one coworker who was white, who was an ally. She worked out of a different building. And I, I'll never forget calling her and saying, are you busy? Can you walk with me here? She's like, yeah, but why? And I said, I need a white person to walk with me. And she started crying. Mm. Is it overt? I'm just, I'm, I'm curious as to whether it's like, so, it's, you, it's <clears throat> whether it's overt or whether it's, or whether it's, is it implicit, implicit. or explicit? It's both. It, it is both. And I mean, I had one guard lock me in my own office while I'm, I'm sitting in my chair at my desk. He locked me in my own office and stood over me and proceeded to call me Amazon and told me about how all the lesbians in Truro would love me. And so there's different dynamics there, right? Because I'm, I'm a female who's also a female color. And I'm sitting there with. I'm literally just like sitting there praying and hoping that someone would walk by and like see the desperation on my face for this man mm-hmm. to leave yeah. me alone. And as as a woman who's physically smaller in stature um, and build, you're always cognizant of not making a male who's bigger than you angry. Mm. Especially in a scenario where you're in a small room that, you know, has no exit mm-hmm. in sight. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. And... Um, 
so these are very they're, they're difficult things to navigate but even the people who do these things so there were times when like depending who was working the front gate at the prison where I wouldn't be let in until I waited for a white coworker to show up to work because every door like you'd have to be buzzed in right and it Again, it's not everyone, and I'm not trying to shame anyone. But it exists. It exists. And my question going back here and to the conversation we were having earlier and to the conversation that Tyler Simmons and I are going to have later on toxic masculinity, and as a woman who's lived through difficult experiences with men, who I, I won't out is... How do we live towards healing? How do we move towards healing? How do we create spaces for these conversations without the need to shame, without the need to cancel people? Because that's that, it's too easy and too problematic. Well, you did something yeah. that I don't like. but and, and again, this is the clinician in me, but this is also the empath in me, mm-hmm. is we judge people based on very different standards than we judge ourselves. Mm-hmm. Very different standards. And what kind of empathy and mercy would I want if I were the one to mess up? And the thing is, with this day and age of, you know, problematic behaviors of men coming up in the media more often, mm-hmm. What's happening is that's often eliciting a feeling of shame in some other men about ways that they've acted before, Mm -hmm. things that they're not proud of. And we can choose to do two things with that. You can choose to tuck that away as if it never happened because it's uncomfortable and you're afraid because what if you're outed? Yeah. You could choose to tuck that away as if it never happened. Or you could choose to lean into that discomfort and work through it with someone who will meet you halfway with empathy mm-hmm. and mercy so you could actually work towards reconciliation. But what's happening is, is we're not giving people that space, even people with problematic racial views. And that's hard for me to say. It's taken me so long to get here because that, I've been told I don't want a nigger taking care of me. Yeah. I had a patient say that. Yeah. I've had patients say I'm not going to get into it, but numerous things like that. Yeah. It's never personal, first and foremost. It's never personal. And my duty is to take care of you regardless of how you treat me. Yeah. And that's always, and I've always been okay doing that. Mm. But what's been hard for me <clears throat> is how hurtful it is when you're, after I'm done caring for you, how do I not internalize that, right? Mm-hmm. And how do I not feel as though, well, you're just racist, you're bad. No, it doesn't, life doesn't work that, doesn't way. Work that way. We are it, all, you know, prejudiced in our own ways. We all have human. forms of we racism. Are, we are all we all carry forms yeah. of sexism or yeah. homophobia, yeah. whatever it may yeah. be. Yeah. It, it's, so there's, there's, a, there's, fuck, there's so many things running through my mind right now, but I, and I'll try to like, I'll try to, I, I'm going to start with, I'm going to start with this and I, you know what, there's a part of me that is even scared fucking saying this, but, um, I think a perfect example of like what you're talking about right now is this whole thing that happened with Liam Neeson recently in in the media. Brilliant. So Sorry, I've been under uh, a it's rock okay, for but it's, uh, you know, I look obviously I am a white male, a white cisgendered male 
full of privilege. I've never known what it's been like to to live anything cl- fucking remotely close to what you've said mm-hmm. over the last whatever fifteen minutes since we started talking about this. Um, so I just want to put that out right off the bat that you honor that privilege. Absolutely, yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. Mm-hmm. However. This thing recently happened that was like that was it was it was pretty it was pretty heated in the media. Liam Neeson came out and spoke about how, um, in an interview, he was talking about he was talking about a, you know he was on a press junket about a movie that he did about like revenge and feeling mm-hmm. hatred for it, it was like oh, taken was he the person six talking or whatever. About right? wanting to so he had a friend he had a friend of yes, his that I was raped and this. raped by a black man and, and so this, he was yeah. like he was so. Filled with rage that he he went out onto the streets hmm. into into l- like black neighborhoods yeah. and was hoping that there was going to be a black guy that would come up to him and start mm-hmm. some shit so he could kill that man to like work out his anger about a black guy who had raped his his best friend. Mm-hmm. And he comes out to say this with the with the intention to go. I've reconciled that. That is that is well, he, he that did is, he did do that. In I the same, honor that in that the was same, problematic. In the same, in, yes, he, I honor that that was he racist. Was, he was going. I, this was uh, this is insane that I even had this thought. Yeah, but I I had I had been there before. Yeah, and how horrible is that? Well, he and went I, on to I, say I, that he that he went through this for about five days, then basically said. I snapped back to reality, realized that I realized was in a really dark place, yeah. went to seek help, need, saw help. a therapist, worked so through those, it. Like, I love that you're bringing this up because there are very divided schools of thought on this. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and, and this is why I, I wanted to preface. The same this, page. this is why I wanted to preface with mm-hmm. I'm a white male. I have never, fa- I have yeah. never faced you know, persecution because of my fucking skin color, because of your my gender, whatever, because of yeah. whatever. Yeah. However, <clears throat> for someone to come out and say – um, this had been a part of my life where I did this thing that was really awful and I realized how fucked up it was. Mm. And I just want to like let everyone know that that was a thing. Now, completely voluntarily, and, completely and, and, voluntarily. And, but like, but for, he, for then, he, for he then wasn't then forced. Everyone, it didn't yeah. come out in. No, no, no. Because someone dug up dirt. He was like, listen, this is something that I went. Yeah. And I, I understand that that is that is super fucked up. And, and that I'm sure if I was a black male. If I was not who I am, I've watched. I would probably feel a fucking way about Liam Neeson after hearing that. But also, I, I, I would hope. I would fucking hope. And I feel like you and this is where you and I are kind of this, very similar. I think I would hope that I would also be someone who would go, kudos to this fucking dude for actually like acknowledging how fucked up this is. And I can get a lot of flack for my opinion. I on know this. you can. Yeah. I know you can. And I yeah. know some of the people that will give you flack yeah. up for this. And and. Again, that's mm-hmm. okay too. It's okay it, to feel away, but also we have to recognize. We, we need to recognize that we need. We have to, to be able to see, talk about this, but, stuff. And, and we need to leave room for it. But we need to learn <clears throat> to see the world from a more compassionate lens. That's right. And I've watched many debates on that topic between from white people to black people, mm-hmm. Caucasian to mm-hmm. whatever you want to. Whatever terms you want to use, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything because um, I don't believe white or black is an insult. So I've watched this debate from amongst black people, you know, different identifying people, people of, you know, straight African descent, people of African North American descent. Yeah. I've, I've watched it across the board and 
as I read the comments, I'm thinking, I don't have very popular views. Yeah. But I'm okay with that <clears throat> because I'm at peace with the way I see the world. Because the way I see the world is continually growing and changing. Yeah. But I'm a much more, a much more productive and peaceful person the more I attempt to see the world from a more empathetic lens. Yeah. And, it, and so, so the, other, the other things that were coming to my mind was, you know, speaking about, and this is, this is like a sort of two-parter. So, so there was also a recent podcast I was listening to about addiction. And, and this fascinating thing that's coming out that, that we haven't actually like taken into consideration or we haven't, we haven't taken the time to implement about addiction, which is that addiction do, isn't due to the substance. Addiction is more so due to the, the environment within which someone finds themselves, right? So there was a, there was a study where there was, they, they took a rat and they put a, a rat or a mouse in a, in a cage and they gave that rat, no, that mouse, nothing except for mm. water and heroin, heroin-laced water. And the mouse has nothing to go on, bored as fuck, trapped in this cage, and has two choices, water to sustain yourself Mm -hmm. or heroin to change your scenario and feel better. And And of course, the mouse just goes for the heroin, only the heroin, only the heroin, and then dies due to heroin overdose because it just continuously takes it, right? <clears throat> and so after the study was conducted, we, we all thought, okay, well, th- there we go. It's very easy to see, like, heroin triggers this thing within us or within, the, you know, bodies that makes us addicted to this thing and we will continuously go to it if we become addicted to it and uh, until we basically run out our lives. Mm-hmm. But then there was this guy who was like, well, hold on, hold on. That mouse is living a pretty shit life in that little cage with nothing else but heroin and water to choose from. So why don't (laughs) why don't we do the exact same experiment? We'll take the heroin water on one side of the cage, the regular water on the other side of the cage, but we also deck that cage out with other mice and uh, toys, and the mice can fuck as much as it wants, and it can play as much as it wants, and it has wheels to run on, and it's like this little mouse theme park, but also fully has the ability to take in as much heroin as it wants or as much water as it wants. And the mouse doesn't go for the heroin. Mm. It's there. It doesn't need it mm-hmm. because it's living in this happy life. It doesn't so, need to fill this void. It doesn't void. need to fill this void, right? Yeah. And so, so to take that and turn it and, and look at you know, society and humans and what's going on right now with like the opioid crisis, well, where are the places in the world where this opioid crisis is, is the biggest? And, and what are the options we're giving people? It's, it's taking part in places that, are, um, that overall in terms of statistics are much higher in um, – much higher stats in like – Mental health issues, mm-hmm. uh, poverty issues, you, you know, all of these, that. all of these fucking things. <clears throat> Whereas, you know, you look at places that are a little more affluent where things aren't that bad. People are still fucking doing drugs. People are still doing heroin. People are still doing party drugs, but they're not becoming addicted to it because they don't need to change their life. They're living mm-hmm. a happy life. And so you look at places like Portugal or you look at places like, um, you know, Sweden, places where they've legalized the use of these things and it's completely changed these people's lives and, they're no longer addicted. Okay, so where am I going with this? It's all based on environment. It's all based off of like what you are placed in and how that's going to affect you. 
like the stories I was talking about earlier, we all have our stories. We all have our stories. We are a culmination of stories. That mm-hmm. is what we are. Now you take a child and you – now I'm switching from the drug thing and mm-hmm. going back into like more of – how we view the world and how we speak to the people around like, us. I was raised very homophobic. Take a child bur- bur- like, and, and birth them into a neo-Nazi family. Mm-hmm. That kid's going to ri- grow up to hate anyone who isn't the Aryan fucking white race. Yeah. Jews, yeah. blacks, people yeah. of di- with disabilities, yeah. any, of that, any of that stuff. They're going to hate them. But take that person, pluck them out of that and completely change their environment. And this is, we, this has happened. There's stories of this of people coming out of that going, "Holy oh. shit, that's not the world. That's not the world I want to live in. That's not the place I need to be." We have this ability to change the way that we live our lives. Yeah, we have this capacity to, to unlearn. To unlearn. But, that, but here's my: <clears throat> we have to see a need for unlearning. And totally. What I. I feel like you've had something to say for a while. You should talk and then I'll say something. Yeah, well, I was, I was just going to say, and not to like interrupt this thought because I, I totally agree with you, you Jer, but um, the one thing that makes me so mad about the war, the current state of the world is the fact that everything is so fucking polarizing. I was, and exactly. It's just yeah. like you're either one school of thought or you're, or you're the, the other, other. school of thought be. and you can't fucking have a conversation with anybody about anything that might pull you in one in the opposite I, direction like i used to see the world isn't the sign I'm of growing like like changing mm. i used to feel like if you didn't agree with me then you're racist you're my enemy yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and I, and that's hard for me to mm. admit but i'm the more openly i'm able to do so the more i can find healing and the more I can learn to see the world from an even more compassionate place. So as I was just about to mention, I was raised in a very homophobic culture. And one of the most important people to me, who I consider blood, isn't blood by birth, but I consider blood till death do us part, is gay. Mm. And is from the same country. And if this person's family knew, this person may not have lived, is what I'll say. If, his, if this person's family knew that this person was gay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, when this <clears throat> finally, when they finally came out, because I asked, and I didn't ask to be nosy or mean. I asked, like, how can I love you properly? And I asked someone who is a loved, another loved one to this person. They said, you need to call him. I called him. I had plans for the day. I called immediately. I said, I dropped all my plans. I said, I'm coming to get you. I went and picked him up and I asked him. And I, for the life of me, couldn't stop crying. Because when he told me, he, I said, why didn't you tell me? And I asked, did I ever make you feel like I would love you any less? And for weeks, I was an emotional wreck because I just thought, did I make him feel Mm. like I would love him any less? And he denied that. But it just made me hyper aware. How do I make people feel? I had a patient who was one of my favorite patients. 
once came in and went on a rant about how the whole world is against him because they're a white male. And I, in my head, I thought, is he really saying this right now? Like, ouch. Mm. Does he not see me? Is this the same person? And I had to have, and I had to be very mindful of how I was treating him in that appointment because my, like, the human in me wanted to treat him differently. Mm-hmm. And after that appointment, I had to have a conversation with myself to say, very good people can have problematic views of the world. Yeah. How do we lean into that conversation? We have, and just, to, we have to do it with our just, own arms open. We just, can't do it closed off. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and just like how <clears throat> I was starting to mention earlier about, you know, males who are hearing of these horrible things that men have done and they're watching these men be publicly crucified. And that, that eliciting a feeling of shame because a lot of the men I know have done problematic things in their lives. A lot of the women, a lot of people in general. But when talking about toxic masculinity, a lot of the males I know have at one point or another done something that even they want to acknowledge is problematic. Mm. But a lot are too scared to. Because what if someone finds out? And it goes back to guilt versus shame. Guilt being I did bad. Shame being I am bad. Just because you did bad, it doesn't mean you (coughs) are bad. And and I had to remind people that all the time when you know when people hear, "Oh, you just work at the prison. I bet you're happy to get out of there." And I remind people all the time, it wasn't the inmates. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And just because they did bad, doesn't mean they are bad. Just Mm -hmm. because I've done bad, it doesn't mean I am bad. I honestly, this is. I I am so glad that this is where this conversation ended up mm-hmm. because I think I I truly do think that this is one of the more important things that needs to be addressed these days and um and I'm I'm with you I think that we are inherently good I re- I, I truly believe it I, I truly believe we, believe are. we are inherently good and I think that most people if they actually sat and thought about that they would probably agree but it would take a little bit of fucking effort for them to actually see, yes, that is how I actually feel. But it would take some effort for some people to admit that they're good. That's right. So here, if yeah. you have a young child from a young age, and I've watched this in my nephew, who I adore. Mm-hmm. He's 10 years old, but is a brilliant young man and is often seen as being this troublemaker. If you're from a young age told you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. Well, you grow up to be bad because that's just the easiest thing to do. No one's expecting you to be good. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like yeah. if you're told that enough times, you become it. Yeah. How do we speak to each other? Because the way I speak to you, I'm speaking life. Mm. How do we speak to each other? How do we treat each other? And just like you said, open arms. And a lot of these conversations are also still imperative when it comes to the death and dying process, because a lot of the 100%. a lot of the grudges held between families <laughs> or family members could be resolved if we just looked at each other with a little more empathy. And I think it's a lot harder for young men to be empathetic or to learn how to be empathetic because we raise young women and young girls from a young age to be empathetic. Mm -hmm. Not every male is raised that way. We think it's easy. Oh, you're lucky you didn't have a girl. Mm -hmm. Why? We put so much more effort 
into the moral code of our daughters. Mm-hmm. But we act like we don't have to put effort into raising boys. No, because boys, they because they, they just learn to stuff it down. Because boys will be boys. Boy, yeah, boys and, will be boys. And that's no longer, that can't be good enough. No. Mm-hmm. That can't be good enough. And so then you have young women who are my age, who are in their, t- their 20s or 30s and who are, as per Jeff Pereira, a good friend of mine who does work around masculinity in Toronto, they're emotionally jacked. Yeah. You've been flexing those muscles forever. Because you've learned how to be empathetic from time. Whereas a 20 or 30 year old man is more like the person who goes to the gym once every few years when it mm. comes to empathy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right? Yeah, so that's then, a fucking so great then, example. So then we had, and yeah. big ups to Jeff Pereira for that. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah. We have young people getting in relationships who don't know how to communicate because they're not even seeing each other. Mm-hmm. And, and men think, oh, well, she's just trying to mold me. To No. Mm. She's trying to teach you how to be empathetic. She's trying to train your empathy muscles that have never been touched. Yeah. It's funny. Our, like, when we, we did a, a survey a couple of times, and, and every time we got it back, it was like a sort of general survey on who's listening to the podcast. And the the numbers were very heavily skewed, right? Mm. Like like ninety percent women mm. are listening, and ten percent men. And we were like, "What the fuck is that?" You know, like what what is that? And, we need and, to do better. And and people were like, "Oh, it's because you guys are like three good looking guys." Okay, thank you. We know that, but that's not why people are fucking listening. Yeah. I, you know, that it, it's got to be more so, than that. And that goes back and to it's emotional labor. Of, it's, the, it's the it's the empathy. <laughs> it's the it's the like vulnerability. It's the fact that we are actually having these conversations that are it like makes people uncomfortable. Yes, to, and to bring it full circle. I'm going to say one more thing there, and I'm going to bring it full circle. Yeah. So. It is unfair for the women to have to carry all of the emotional labor of training people. Mm. If someone does not want to be trained, and trained I'm using in terms of like empathy muscles, mm. I'm not using yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but I think that the, the, we're speaking of two different things when it comes to people who, who want healing. There's something else that's problematic that we won't even touch today. But what about those men who are toxic and who know it, but mm. don't want that healing or help. Yeah, yeah, That's even more problematic, and that's destructive and dangerous. Yeah, But we're talking about people who are leaning into conversations, right? But to bring it back full circle, I was talking about empathy, emotional labor. Oh, yes. Death and dying. Why do we not want to have those conversations? Why were the adults in my loved one's life pushing her away? Mm. We don't want pain that isn't ours. And we want to avoid pain and discomfort as much as possible. Whether it comes to relationships and having to own my own dysfunction that I don't want to admit is there. Or whether it comes to being empathetic. Because compassion means sitting with someone in their darkness. Uh It is so easy for me to see you in pain and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I hope things get better for you and move along. Bye. Yeah. yeah. And life can be very lonely and difficult for empaths. And I don't use that like it's, <laughs> I feel like it's become a very trendy term. Mm-hmm. But I mean for like people who are empaths or caregivers who carry the burden yeah. of other people all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Because you don't just do that at work. You, you mm. care from your core. Mm-hmm. 
But that's pain and discomfort a lot of people don't want, so they avoid. And I catch myself doing that all the fucking time. All the fucking time. But here's the thing. It's not just... We don't just sit together in darkness. Like, there's a verse, and I'm not trying to sound like (laughs) a preacher. Um, There's a verse that I love so much in Scripture. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Mm -hmm. Empathy. Because I'm, if you're if you're sitting in sadness, I'm gonna sit in sadness with you. If you're joyful, I'm gonna celebrate your joy with you. I'm gonna celebrate you. I'm gonna celebrate your accomplishments. Mm. I, I I just feel like aren't the most beautiful experiences in life the the moments when you can be so um, intimate with someone else and not like physically intimate but emotionally intimate, yeah. where you're able to go to the place of like you said darkness be vulnerable and be there to support them Mm -hmm. in that moment and help them through it or be supported through something like that. Mm -hmm. Isn't that like the most intimate way to foster emotional connection? Yeah. And it's all, it's, it's also with death. It's, it's our, it's humans biggest commonality. It's the only, it's the only, it's the the only thing thing (laughs) everybody shares. There's not one person who doesn't. And, I think that there's probably, I think, you know, what you said earlier, like, you know, death shouldn't be this scary, you know, scary shitty thing that we all are, you know, terrified of experiencing. There's a lot to be learned about each other and a lot of, of greatness and positivity to be found, I think, in, in <coughs> understanding that we all have it in common and using it, using it as a tool to understand each other mm-hmm. because, you know, and again, coming going back to something you said at the beginning of the episode, which was something around, you know, when there's been a estranged family members that are that are then brought back together when death comes knocking at someone's door, because I think death a lot of times allows us to see past the things that we've built up as as things that we hold against each other, and it can bring people back to each other physically. Mm-hmm. But emotionally, they need help sometimes with that bridge. Mm-hmm. And what greater of an honor than to lean into that discomfort and help people <coughs> have those difficult conversations? Mm-hmm. I went on. I was supposed. I went on vacation in October. It was supposed to be vacation to visit one of my best friends, and she coincidentally and very conveniently married one of my other best friends and he's from the Bahamas he's a physician there and she's from here she's from Spryfield days into the trip the the groom like my my friend his brother who is a pilot got into a plane crash and so the vacation it was supposed to be a reunion of university friends this we were a really close-knit group who's comfortable with this kind of stuff with each mm-hmm. other the vacation turned into a search and rescue for his brother. And it, it meant so much to my friend and her husband and this whole family that I was able to lean right into that pain and was hurting with them. And it was really hard coming home and being home and having to, to return to work and normal life. But my heart was there. 
powerful things happen when we sit with people in their pain. And as a caregiver, we need to learn to let people sit with us in our pain mm-hmm. and in our joy. But, we're, you know, we're, we're all right with celebrating each other. We're all right with being happy because mm-hmm. it doesn't take as much effort. Right. But it there will be a lot good. of people. Yeah. Some people and, have and a real Jeremy, tough time with it. But yeah. <laughs> there will be a lot of people who are around you when you're happy. Mm-hmm. There may not be as many people around you when you're sick. Mm-hmm. And... That is why like the, the work that people do who are caregivers is so crucial. Mm. I will never forget one of our CF patients who was a regular. You get to know people so well. Mm-hmm. It was Christmas. He died on Christmas. It was the worst Christmas. None of his family was there. Mm. And we got him gifts. Like everyone on the unit, we got him gifts. And they were like lame gifts. <laughs> but he was so happy opening them and he could mm. barely speak. But he was so happy opening them. Because in that moment, we felt like family. Very, we came from very different worlds. Mm-hmm. But we were humans meeting on the same page. And that page was his pain. The, I, this is... Um... I hope people he- hear this. I know there's going to be, I mean, there's, there's obviously going to be a bunch of people that hear this, but I hope people who hear this really hear this. Mm. And um, I, on behalf of, you know, the three of us, I, I thank you so, so fucking much for coming in and sharing this, this uh, vitally important perspective. And, and uh, and for everyone who is listening to this right now, and if this has resonated with you, do all of us a favor and and share this with someone. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is this this shit is so fucking important. It really truly is. Um, v, I know you're. This is so crazy. You're leaving here, literally going. To like a panel, a talk <laughs> on toxic masculinity with Tyler Simmons tonight. Um, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to hold you. I, I want to let you get to that. But uh, do you have just, do you have a, a a place where people can like find your art? Um, I suck at self promotion because I think I suck <laughs> working on that. Yeah. Um, I'm getting more courage to put myself out there. I'm, I have a YouTube page that's old and I haven't really updated, but mostly Instagram and Facebook. What's your yeah. Instagram? If people want to follow you and V E R E N A R I Z G Verena Rizg. All right. Uh, v thank you. Thank you guys Honestly. for having me yeah. and yeah, for, yeah. for meeting, for leaning into that conversation with me. Mm-hmm. Nothing but love. Thanks for, so good. Thanks for meeting us halfway. <laughs> uh, and thank you all so much again. Thank you so much for, for listening and being a part of this conversation. Uh, this, this shit wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for you. So uh, thank you all so much. And if you want to continue to support us, go to iTunes or Apple podcasts and subscribe, rate and review, do that whole thing. Uh, you can go to Patreon. Patreon.com slash sick boy to contribute there. Um, we love all y'all who have been contributing and making a huge difference in how we, uh, we operate and sh- uh, spread the word and have great conversations. So uh, mm. again, that's patreon.com slash sick boy.
And uh, thank you so much to Donovan the Meerkat Morgan for the amazing sound design on this podcast. Um, it wouldn't be possible uh, without you, Donovan, to make us sound really great. Like, like, uh, and also like we're um, in a Star Wars um, spaceship fight, <laughs> which is crazy. Okay, yeah, sure. There you <laughs> go. Uh, so uh, thanks, Donovan. Thanks. Uh, Without any copyright issues, I'm, I hope. Yeah. Donovan. Thanks. Is a Wookiee sound copyrighted? Because <laughs> yeah. I'd like to hear one of those right now. Okay, uh, thanks to the band uh, formerly known as Take Part, formerly known as Florida Man. Currently without name. Uh, you can find their music somewhere on the internet. Without I've, name's not a bad name. Whoa. That is Colin, actually pretty without good. Without name. Just look into it. I like it. That's actually not bad. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty good. Uh, that is it for this week. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Verena. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.